Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show, so if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please go to askbillnye.com and type on in. We want to hear what's on your mind. We want you to challenge us. You want us to direct the conversation to new planes of understanding. And I am joined, of course, once again, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Oh, Bill, it's always a thrill. Each of these podcasts uh, takes us someplace totally new and weird and exciting and kind of mind-expanding. Mind-expanding despite crushing pressures, cold and corrosive environments? Exactly, Bill. That's why we're joined today by Dr. Julie Huber. She is an oceanographer at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Greetings, Dr. Huber. Hey. How's it going? Fabulously, (laughs) now that you're here. Now, let me get this straight. You grew up in the Midwest, in North America. That's right. Then you you end up at at sea, in the ocean. Yeah. I think like a lot of kids who grow up in the landlocked Midwest, I just sort of dreamed of what the ocean was like, and I used television and aquariums and learned about it that way. And so you longed to see the sea? I did. I mean, my view of the ocean was very shaped by places like the Shedd Aquarium and what Jacques Cousteau was showing me. So when I was 18, my parents said I could get on out and I moved to Florida. What did you do in Florida? I went to college. Oh, yes. Yeah. The thing, you know, that (laughs) I was supposed to do. Many people do. Yes. (laughs) So what is your actual area of expertise? Right. So my area of expertise is actually studying existing ecosystems on our planet at the bottom of the ocean. And my I'm a microbiologist. And so I study the single-celled organism at the very bottom of the ocean. Now my work is way beyond the depths of which scuba divers can go. The deep ocean. It's very deep. What is it that you dig about the deep ocean? There's lots of things I dig about it. Uh, it's dark. It's interesting, and there's really weird life there. And they get by in a totally different way than how you and me and everybody else up here gets by. For example? 
So up here, our whole ecosystem and the way that we survive is based on photosynthesis. Sunlight. Yep. So plant harnessing energy from the sun, and then we eat the plants, and then maybe the cow eats the plants or whatever, and we have this food chain. And the environments I'm interested in, at the bottom of the ocean, it's kind of flipped over. And so the organisms at the bottom of the ocean, especially in these volcanic environments that I study, where sort of hot volcanic fluids are coming out of the seafloor, the organisms extract their energy from that instead of sunlight. Now, there's all sorts of things that Corey will much more reasonably ask you in logical order, but <laughs> I'm going to jump to this. Okay. One of the things that Darwin and uh, Wallace concluded was that all life had a common ancestor. So this gets us back to, for me, at least two questions. When you're talking about deep ocean vents, as I understand it, you're talking about forms of life that depend on chemicals instead of sunlight. And the question then is who came first, chemical organisms or sunlight organisms? And then there's all this detritus, right, stuff that falls from the sea surface from where photosynthesis is going on on the top of the ocean, falls down to the bottom of the ocean. How much do those chemosynthesizing organisms depend on the falling snow of stuff? So there's organisms that use oxygen. You know, they might oxidize, for example, something like iron or hydrogen sulfide coming out of the volcano. And that helps support an animal like those giant tube worms or those big clams. There are other organisms living in these vents that don't use the oxygen. They don't use any of that raining organic matter all they're using is the energy from the volcano. So hydrogen, carbon dioxide, iron, and sulfur. So those organisms are not connected to photosynthesis in, in any way. And those are the organisms that we think are more closely related to this putative, you know, universal common ancestor. Those of us who live on the surface, and I include myself, sort of can picture the idea of, you know, Water and sunshine makes plants and everything eats that, and there's that cycle. When you're talking about things eating and living off of these hydrothermal vents, what are they eating? Where, what's the energy source? How are they? How does that taking the place of the sunshine and the air and the water that we're used to? So the base of the food chain, where it's plants up here, in these volcanic environments, it's single-cell microbes, so bacteria and archaea, which are two domains of life. What's the difference? Tell us. Tell the listener. Well, it has. Uh, of course, Corey and I know all about it. Of course, yeah. <laughs> we're just testing to see if you know. <laughs> yeah, no, really, help it, me out. A lot of it has to do with their cell machinery. We actually share some parts of our cell machinery with archaea. Just kind of interesting. There's thought to be, you know, there is a universal common ancestor between us and just the archaea, uh, whereas the bacteria went off on a different branch. Uh, so they they handle their protein chaperoning a little bit different. Their membranes are different. And when you, you know, sequence their DNA and put them on the tree of life, they're very different from one another. Under the microscope, they look the same. Okay, so there they are, and they're eating what exactly? So, you know, so in the archaea, for example, there's a group of organisms called methanogens, and they eat hydrogen and carbon dioxide. And so they hate oxygen. They're they hate very, it, Corey. But there's other organisms that are reducing sulfur. Uh, maybe, you know, eating hydrogen, things like that. And they don't need any of the oxygen, right? So they're a whole class of organism. We call them anaerobic autotrophs. So they, so. they don't need oxygen and, and, they, they, and they don't need light. They don't need light and they don't need organic carbon. Like we eat, maybe we eat a hamburger or a bag of chips, right? That's a heterotroph. 
These organisms, like plants, are autotrophs, so they're fixing their own carbon at the same time. So again, they're not relying on that rain of organic matter, and they're using energy from the volcano. So now this almost sounds like alien life on Earth, even though, as you say, it's still DNA-based. It's actually related to us at a, at a deep level. Correct. Okay. Corey, let's so, go to the phones. Yeah. Uh, we have Nicole on the line, and Nicole is going to help us set things straight. Uh, Nicole, you have a question for us. Uh, yeah, I do. Where are you calling from, Nicole? I'm from Minnesota. Oh, do you know? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Nicole. Please go ahead. Um, if there was any alien species currently in the ocean, um, would evolution cause it to evolve like Earth creatures, like how um, all land creatures like evolved from the ocean and like those microorganisms? Would alien species do the same thing, and how long would it take? How long for an alien species to evolve in either our or an ocean? That's a really take it, Julie. Well, tough well, question. Well, hold on, Nicole. Are, are you asking <laughs> well, like our ocean specifically? Would would it start to evolve like Earth creatures? Right. So, like, like if there were an alien uh, cell or something that started evolving at the bottom of the ocean, you mean would it evolve into like worms and clams and fish and things like that? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Would yeah? Would it start looking like Earth creatures? Yeah, I think that's a a really interesting question, and I I have no idea what the answer is. We have lots of examples. On Earth, though, where organisms, microorganisms have been moved from one environment on our planet to a completely different place, sometimes they make it, sometimes they just die. Uh, So a lot of it would depend on where it's coming from and kind of where it ends up. And I think one of the really interesting questions about thinking about life in other ocean worlds is, let's say we go to Jupiter's moon Europa and we detect single-celled life. Does that mean... Two billion years from now, you know, Europa is going to have jellyfish and and sand sharks. You know, how do we how did we get from that to where we are now, I think, is a really fascinating question. Well, upstream of that is how does I mean, which is maybe what Nicole's really asking is how did life start at all? Sure. Well, how Don't. did it, Julie? <laughs> yeah, we, we've got you here to answer the question. Uh, yeah, I I, you know. I'm a scientist, right? So I can I can use evidence to think about what our planet was like billions of years ago. You know, so we didn't have oxygen. It was hotter than it is now, a lot hotter. Uh, there was a ton of volcanic activity. We are also getting bombarded from space. There was this heavy bombardment period when our planet was just getting mucked with all the time. And so, Asteroid-wise. Yes, yes. And so the surface was a pretty unpleasant place, you would imagine, Uh, But deep in the ocean in these volcanic environments where we have these redox gradients that we talked Mm -hmm. about, this chemical energy, you're protected from the the heavy bombardment, seems like a likely place that life could have originated. And so amino acids come to us from asteroids. There are amino acids in asteroids. Yeah, yeah. Could have life started as a result of asteroid impacts? Right. So the panspermia hypothesis mm. that life actually came to Earth from somewhere else. Sure. Maybe. Maybe. Who's to say? Who's to say? Maybe so it came from Mars. What are you looking <laughs> for in your research? Well, at, at my core, I'm an oceanographer. I'm interested in how our planet works, how life survives on this planet, you know, how it makes a living and how the work, you know, how it all works, how it fits together, the geology, the chemistry, the microbiology. Recently, you know, getting more involved with NASA and thinking about life in ocean worlds. Involved with NASA? But they're about outer space. (laughs) 
Yes. And you're talking about the ocean. That's inner space. <laughs> well, there you go. A lot of what we are doing on the seafloor is very similar to what we want to do on these other planetary bodies, right? We're going to be using robotics, which is mostly what we use in our work at the bottom of the ocean. And we're going to be looking at the chemistry, the geology, and the biology of the system. And so we've been trying to bring together space scientists and oceanographers to try to figure out how, we, how do we answer this question in a, you know, a cost-effective, straightforward way. What's the question we're answering? Is, are we alone in the universe? Yes. That's it. That's that's, it. That's why you explore space. Are we alone? uh, And where did we all come from? Those are just these deep, pun intended questions. Nicole, you have gotten us started. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's just a a great question. Thank you. When do you think life started on Earth? It started in the ocean, right? I mean, that seems reasonable. Right. I mean, this is like a really big question. Yeah, well... (laughs) This is a big podcast. This is the Science Rules podcast. Yeah, this is a big question. So, uh, you know, there's pretty good evidence that life evolved over three and a half billion years ago. Um, Not three. Three and a half. Three and a half. I mean, this is a whole, you know, there's a whole group of scientists to debate whether it's 3.2 or 3.25 or... So if I bring a single-celled organism from the bottom of the ocean in the sediment and bring it to the laboratory, it can handle the lower pressure of an aquarium or what have you? It depends on the organism. Some cannot. Some, we have to really uh, give them very, very specific things in the laboratory, including high pressure sometimes. Uh, That's usually clicks in when organisms are growing deeper than 5,000 meters. So the deepest point in the ocean is 11,000 meters. Uh, and most of the organisms between about 5,000 and 11,000, they need pressure to grow in the laboratory. So wait, do you have in your lab like a cold, high-pressure tank? You take stuff from the deep and put it in there and kind of make it think it's still down? And it's... Right. I don't have the pressure stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I go the other way with temperature. So in my lab, we have a bunch of incubators and ways to get rid of all the oxygen and give them different chemicals to try to recreate the hydrothermal vent environment. Um, But it's pretty fascinating. We've brought organisms back to life in our lab that can grow right here, you know, at sea level, but they can also grow at the equivalent of five kilometers. And how do they do that is one of the big questions. That's a huge range of habitat that they can cover. You know, we have, you know, big animals can't survive across those extremes. And so what allows them to do that? Those are some of the questions we're interested in. Do they have DNA? They do. I mean, all known life on Earth is based on DNA, with the exception of RNA-based viruses. And there's a lot of debate about whether or not that's actually life. Okay. You're a microbiologist. Uh, Have you considered the possibility that there's a so-called second genesis, that life started a different way, doesn't have DNA or something doesn't have the same setup. And it still exists on this planet? Yeah. Right. They, would... they just sort of out of out of sight because we don't know how to find it or sequence for it. And it's on the bottom of the ocean, so you could never <laughs> – I mean, it's just hard to stumble across without extraordinary instruments, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the tools that we have now to detect cells, uh, they're not just based on DNA, right? They're also based on looking for a cell membrane or looking for proteins, amino acids, uh, looking for a chemical gradient, all sorts of things. So could Tell there... us about a chemical gradient. Sure. So a lot of the organisms that I study in particular, they sort of sit at what we call a redox gradient. Reduction the, oxidation. Right, where there's oxygen on one side and, let's say, sulfur on the other, and that's their sweet spot. 
uh, and they live right along that gradient. And often, just by measuring the chemistry on either side, we can predict the types of organisms we think we'll find. Okay, 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 okay. So this gradient's in the ocean water. The gradient is created when the volcano has fluids gushing out of it, <laughs> right? <laughs> So these hot, reducing fluids are coming out. What is reducing? Reducing means it doesn't have oxygen, and it has, like, hydrogen in it and hydrogen sulfide and methane and other gases. It gains an electron, right? It gains that from seawater reacting with the rock in in the ocean crust. Mm -hmm. So this is, like, a really, really fundamental process that's been happening on our planet for billions of years. You take rock, you mix it with water, and chemistry happens, you know. And then if you heat it up, that chemistry happens faster and different things are released from the rock. So does this tell you something about life on other worlds? It potentially could tell us a lot about life on other worlds, and particularly in our solar system, now that we know there's other oceans in our solar system. Where do we find the other oceans? Well, we know about a handful of them. I would say two of the top targets right now are uh, Jupiter's moon, Europa, which has an icy-covered salt ocean. Twice as much seawater as the Earth. Yeah, it's huge. Huge. It's huge. And the ice shelf, the the ice covering is, I I read, you know, kilometers thick. Yeah, tens of kilometers. Yeah, Yeah. so really thick. Uh, And another interesting target is kind of at the other end of the spectrum, uh, Saturn's moon, Enceladus, which is very small. And it's about uh, the size of Texas. Yeah, it's really it's, it's really tiny. Actually, actually, I think smaller than Texas. <laughs> and it too is ice covered, but it actually is kind of spewing out plumes of its ocean into space. And we've been able to capture those plumes with the Cassini mission and get some hints of the chemistry going on. And so now we can wave our hands wildly and make all sorts of predictions about what might be an Enceladus. Okay, you're waving, you're waving your hands. Let's make some predictions. What, what, yeah, I, I what? wave my hands a lot. Are there Enceladusians <laughs> swimming around speaking Enceladusian? Well, I don't know that. One of, one of the most fascinating things about the ocean, I think, is that, you know, we all think about the ocean as this body of water and then it stops at the seafloor. But actually the seafloor, you can kind of think about like a jar of marbles. Um, It's made up of rocks, but there's space between those rocks. And actually, the water is moving through those rocks. And at any single point in time, about 2% of the volume of the ocean is trapped in that crust. Wow. And and that is the fluid, for example. That is the seawater that's reacting with rock and coming out of these underwater volcanoes. So uh, it's sort of like an aquifer, but at the bottom of the ocean. So— uh, how far does water travel? All the way around the world, right? Right. I mean, the ocean conveyor belt, which is the water, seawater currents, you know, that takes about a thousand years or so to get from the North Atlantic to the wow. Pacific. But we have much, we do not have great constraints on how long water travels through crust. And then it also it gets carried inside the earth completely by the by plate tectonics, by the, the crust going yes. into the mantle. You know, as crust gets older, as you go, move away from these spreading ridges— you know, those spaces fill up and there's not as much way for the water to stay in there and it gets squeezed out during subduction. Squeezed out. Squeezed out. So here's a fundamental question before we take another call. I tell the young people, you're mixing vinegar and baking soda to make your volcano. I recommend adding a little dishwashing liquid to make it bubbly if you have the energy. Uh, Add in some red food coloring to make it lava like orange. Yep. The gas that comes out of that reaction, vinegar and baking soda, is the same gas that comes out of volcanoes, carbon dioxide. Yep. 
Where does the volcano get its carbon dioxide? From rocks, from the core of our Earth, right? From the magma that contains this reservoir. Of carbon. Of carbon. But one of the big things that scientists are trying to figure out is this kind of deep carbon cycle. So we focus a lot on, you know, our CO2 emissions, for example, and carbon being trapped in plants and storage and soils and things like that. But there's a whole group of scientists also interested in trying to understand carbon deep within ocean crust uh, and on the continents to to try to constrain it better because it's very poorly constrained. So by constrained, you mean figured out? Figured out. Constrained by the rules of science. Figured out with math. Yeah. So. <laughs> Stick around for more science rules after this. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Science Rules is back. My kids make their underwater volcanoes with Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, well, Alka-Seltzer yeah. is... Um, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a time-honored technique. Well, the, uh, the uh, base is bicarbonate of soda. Right. But the acid is usually tartaric acid, okay. which is uh, creme, of tar- cream of tartar, cream of tartar, which is made from the residue of grapes. Interesting. It's a whole cooking thing. <laughs> it takes us to uh, Billy. Is we're, that right? Yeah, we're we're. It's time for cooking with Billy. Uh, we have Billy on the line. Billy, uh, we're not cooking Billy. It, we're cooking with. We're enjoying yeah, Billy's it's, it's, company. It's, it's, so it's, Billy, yeah, it's to serve man. It's it's a cookbook. Uh, Billy, you you are here with Bill. Uh, where are you calling from, and what's your question? Hey, I'm calling from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. All right. Uh, my question is: since the deepest parts of the ocean are isolated from the surface and exist under very different conditions. Is there a chance that a form of life exists down there that's radically different from us on the surface? And we've never found it. Blah! Ha, 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 ha. What are the chances, Julie? What are the chances? <laughs> and, and how would we find it? Well, that's a great question. And the truth is, until recently, we've had really poor access to the deepest parts of the ocean. The tr- what do you mean by recent? I mean, really, the last, like, 10 years, uh, have we had the right types of vehicles to get to these you know, 10-kilometer, 11-kilometer parts of our ocean. We call them the trenches. Uh, They're all over the ocean, and they're just most of the routine vehicles that we use. So whether that's a remotely operated vehicle or a submarine that people go in, they can't go that deep. But there's sort of been a a, a renaissance and interest in getting to the deepest parts of the ocean. Now there's a number of vehicles and instruments that can get there. And so um, there are 
we have more access points and now we have a few more data points, but we still don't really know. I will say from a number of studies that have been carried out, you know, they see deep sea fishes that are related to ones at shallower depths. They see these big, um, I'm going to call them amphipods. They're like a crustacean. They look like pill bugs, but at the bottom of the ocean. Okay. They're kind of creepy. How, they're like the well, size of- Well, they don't of, think they're creepy. I know, but- I, They like each compared other. Compared to a little pill bug, which you can hold on the tip of your finger, right? They're like, they can grow up to like a foot long. That it's sounds like, kind of cool to me. Yeah. So yeah. they're like centipedical? Yeah. <laughs> but, th- but these things are all somewhat rela- somehow related to the things we already know. Right. So- and and But then there's a lot of microbes, a lot of single-celled organisms. And what we're trying to figure out is how are they related to life at the more shallow depths. But I would say to answer Billy's question, we don't really have enough samples or data points to thoroughly answer it. So, Billy, in Mi- you live in Mississippi. That's right. Uh, how far from the ocean are you? Uh, roughly 80 miles. So do you go to the beach often enough, the shore? No, uh, here and there. I mean, I what led you to this question? Why did you want to know this? Well, I just got to thinking how the, you know, the depths of the oceans aren't too different from extraterrestrial space. Um, they're, they're quite um, distant from us. They're quite, you know, we can't really get to them. They can't really get to us. And they would both exist under very different environmental conditions. So theoretically, that would that should push life in different directions. Uh, different conditions would would offer different evolution. Let me ask Julie. So I'm minding my own exactly. business, reading and then watching, uh, reading the story Fantastic Voyage, then watching the movie Fantastic Voyage. Okay. Where people, you know how you do, you shrink them down and inject them into the bloodstream, <laughs> and the guy makes the offhanded remark. It's a science fiction story, everybody. <clears throat> The guy makes the offhanded remark that blood is about the same chemistry as seawater, human blood. Now, is that a so-called true fact or a false fact? Well, I mean, we're made up of salty water. Our bodies are made up of a lot of water. And, you know, there's a reason if you run really far and you don't sort of drink water and, you know, eat something that has salt in it, you don't feel well. Mm-hmm. Right? We have a salt balance in our body. So intuitively, you'd expect us to come from ocean life. Yes, we came from ocean life. And you know that for sure. I know that for sure. How do you know that? It's Full cool. Side. I mean, you look at the, the tree of life where we put all the DNA of all the organisms we that we know exist. You know, they are all rooted. This last universal common ancestor, which we don't have anymore. It's long gone. Right. We are the relics of that evolutionary history. And it all started in the ocean. But how it started I do not know. Yeah. Where did we come from? But so hang on. How do you know for sure <laughs> that the species, if I can use this expression, unique DNA is that organism no longer exists? I mean, what not it reasonable that that organism could still exist in the muck at the bottom of some uh, part of the ocean? Is it reasonable? I, I don't know. DNA lasting billions of years? Well, it- not, no, no. It's offspring. Sure. It's all, I mean, what we have now is the offspring, yeah, right, of billions sense, of years yeah. of evolutionary history. Whenever I think about the tree of life that we have now, I, I put it on, you know, in my backyard, and then I think about all the roots that are beneath it, and there there could be thousands of other trees of life beneath that soil. And they roots represent, of life. Yeah, they represent all the different trajectories. Maybe there were a bunch of false starts, right? Maybe things started going in one direction and didn't make it. 
And we just, how did it happen? And our DNA system out competed. I mean, how does it happen that we got here? And that's what also what I find so fascinating about thinking about life beyond Earth is, you know, how did we get here? You think about what our planet was like billions of years ago. And are those other places going to get there? Now, you made an offhand comment about just how little of the deep ocean has been explored. How little? I mean, how much or how little of that have we actually had a chance to study? Well, we have pretty bad maps of most of the seafloor. Um, so when you think about, you know, we have we have maps of the entire ocean seafloor. Let me be clear. You can but go they're by a, a globe with yeah, the seafloor depicted. They're really poor resolution for actually finding features. But it always starts with a map. The first thing we do when we go to sea and want to study a new place is we make a high-resolution map. And by that, I mean one to five-meter resolution, right? So and a few feet. How do you do that? With sonar? We use it. We use sonar on ships, multi-beam surveys, um, and sometimes we even take robots to the bottom and have them make the maps at even finer detail. So how big is a robot that goes to the bottom of the ocean? So most of them are about the size of like a VW bug mm-hmm. car. Um, and these and are things that kind of look like submarines, like torpedoes. What do they look like? Well, there's two types of ve- – well, there's three types of vehicles that we use. We used um, autonomous underwater vehicles. These have no people in them. They're not attached to the ship. And they're kind of what I think of as a, a real robot. I'm, I'm doing air quotes. Mm. Because you program them, they go out and they run a mission, and they come back. Usually while they're gone, you can't talk to them, right? They're just running their routine. They're kind of like the Roomba, right? The, oh, yeah, the, that, Roomba that, of the seafloor. Yeah, the Roomba. So they go out, they fly their mission for like 18, 24 hours, and they you come, say fly. come back. That's how you describe it? They that fly is. their mission? They, they're flying just above the seafloor doing what we've asked them to do. The second type of vehicle is a remotely operated vehicle. And so, again, there's no people in it, but it is attached to our ship with a very long cable that gives it power. And, yeah. you know, we have screens and monitors. Uh, and so we're all up on the ship. And the engineers and the scientists are operating the vehicle and the vehicle's doing our work. And then the third ta- type is a, a submarine with people in it, right? A human-occupied vehicle. And uh, that – we put people in it. They go to the bottom at breakfast. They come back at dinner and they do their thing. Uh, so, Billy, why did you ask this yeah. question? Because, you know, as the point has been made, we've explored so little of it. And surely there is something we haven't run into yet. And we assume that life has to abide by our, you know, our biology with DNA and amino acids and this and that. But I guess it's possible that something completely different could exist. So, Julie, do you presume that life all has DNA? So, Billy, you'll be you'll be happy to know there's a whole community of scientists who talk about weird life a lot. Uh, They think about, you know, what if you replace Mm. the phosphorus and the DNA backbone with, you know, Boron or, or arsenic. Or arsenic. Uh, but there have been scientists that have been able to recreate, make from make from just chemistry in the lab, different types of DNA, for example. And the question is, could we detect that in the natural world? And I don't think anyone's decided. I don't think anyone has tried to do that yet. So, Billy, you have taken us down a fabulous road or <laughs> sea lane or anchor cable or... Mm, uh, uh, remotely operated vehicle line. Uh, thank you very much for calling, and please stay tuned as we go to the next big idea. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I'm on the ocean floor, and there's a, a small volcano happening. Yeah. 
but the the weight of the seawater above the volcano makes it not go shooting, if I may, sky high. <laughs> <laughs> but it shoots out a few meters, and it's full of crazy chemicals that we don't encounter most of the time. And then this whole ecosystem starts there. Yeah. And uh, and there's no light. There's no light. Right. And scientists have been have been they're very elegant but simple experiments. Right. So what happens if we take uh, a very common rock, for example, basalt that is found at a lot of underwater volcanoes. What's in basalt? Uh, it's an iron-bearing mineral. There's a and, lot of iron in it. And so if you ever see basalt rocks, they're crystalline. They have sharp, like, uh, cube, uh, cube of dice uh, kind of shapes. Yeah. Well, and when we see them erupting on the seafloor, which we have, they're uh, these kind of, like, big, bulbous lava flows. Those are, um, are those pillow lavas? Pillow that, lavas, yeah. yeah <laughs> There we go. There we go. You know, when, when Kilauea on the big island of Hawaii was erupting last summer, we saw a lot of – that was all basalt, all that lava flow flowing out. So, you know, doing experiments like, well, let's take this rock. Let's react it with seawater. Let's heat it up like what we think is happening in one of these volcanoes. Do we get, for example, any organic carbon compounds forming mm. without any life, right, just abiotically? Just show up. Just show up. Did they? Do they? Yeah, Car- so carbon si- compounds. Yeah, scientists have done this experiment with a bunch of different rocks, and you get some really simple organic compounds that, for example, there are microbes growing in my lab, they can eat it. And so maybe that's a source of energy in early Earth's history. And then we've also measured those organic compounds like at underwater volcanoes. So we've measured things like ethane and propane uh, coming out of these hydrothermal systems. Okay, without bacteria producing them? Without, without? It, it's totally abiotic. That's a different type of volcano with a slightly different rock in its, you know, mm-hmm. in its reactor system. Uh, and so there's another potential place where you could abiotically have this chemistry happening that could support primordial life. All right. Along that line, uh, we have a caller. Yes, we have Prabhakar on the line. Prabhakar. Prabhakar has Where a are you calling pre-bell. from? And this question is going to tie right in. Where are you calling from, Prabhakar? Hello, everyone. I'm I'm Prabhaka. I'm from India. Oh, great. Where in India? In uh, Kolkata. It's a city in West Bengal. And my question is, uh, which life form rules the underworld, photosynthetic or chemosynthetic? Who's running the show down who's, there? Yeah. Who or who's on top? Yeah. The chemical eaters or the uh, or the or the. Did you say in the underworld? That's what he yeah, said. Oh, yes. I love that. I yes. love it. <laughs> the underworld of the ocean. Is it photosynthesis or chemosynthesis that's in charge? Yeah. In the deep ocean, it's definitely chemosynthesis uh, ruling the world. There's, you know, most of the light in the ocean has gone by a few hundred feet. So everybody else is just, they're eating, either eating that rain of organic carbon that is left from photosynth- photosynthetic processes at the surface, or they are fixing their own carbon uh, you know, being an autotroph and using chemical energy. Uh, so which came first? <laughs> well, given most of the organic carbon on our planet does come from photosynthesis, right? I mean, that's why we have sediments. It's why we have the hamburgers that we eat. Okay, like but that. that doesn't mean they came first. It, they, it, doesn't, we, it... it doesn't mean they came first, of course. But again, if we go back to my, you know, my early Earth scenario and thinking about what was present and the conditions. Now, I also just told you, though, that you can have abiotic synthesis of organic carbon. So maybe the first organisms were eating that carbon. I don't know. 
How would you, how would one determine that? Do you have a hypothesis? Do you have a dream experiment? Uh, you know, a hypothesis suggests that I could answer it. You know, that I, I don't think you could. That it is knowable. That it is knowable. I think the origin of life on earth is not knowable. You mean, really? You mean we'll, I really you think we'll never so. have an answer? I don't think we'll ever have an answer. Whoa, 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 whoa. I know, I know. What makes you say just a doggone minute? <laughs> hold it. So hold it. Everybody, you're listening to science <laughs> rules. You're not listening to spirituality rules or throw up our hands rules or, oh, I don't know, rules. This is science rules. Sure. And the premise in science is that nature is knowable. Well, I... I, I would sort of push back on that. I think All right, there well, are, push back. There are things on our planet that are probably unknowable, unknowable, and I think that's okay. Okay. Well, 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 well. Are you uh, saying uh, Bill, that Bill, life? I'm going to get you, cut. You may have. You may. You may have just broken Bill. I, I'm a little. I'm a little worried here. So hold, hold it. Hold it. You think that the origin of life is unknowable? I do. I think. We're talking it's billions and could... billions of years of Earth's history. Okay. We have no rock record of the origin of life, right? This is traditionally how we study well, evolutionary history. But we've only explored a small portion of this ocean floor, right? Yes, but the ocean floor is young. It's constantly recycled. The oldest ocean crust is like 200 million years old. Drop in the bucket. This is great. Uh, thank you. Thank you, man. Uh, thanks for, uh, for tuning in, and thanks for your patience. Science Rules will be right back. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. You're listening to Science Rules. We have another caller. Uh, Patrick, you're on the line. Uh, Patrick, you're on the line. Where are you calling Bill. from? Where are you calling from? Hi, I'm I'm calling from Space City, Houston. Nice. Space City, Houston. We at one time had yeah. a problem. Take it, Patrick. <laughs> so you guys have kind of been touching on my question most of the show, but how close to an alien environment are our oceans near the underwater volcanic vents? Uh, is this an analog that we could truly study to see what's going on in places like uh, Enceladus? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I think there, as we're learning more about places like Europa and Enceladus, we're figuring out the types of analogs we need. We talked a little bit about Enceladus and how it's cold and has this really high pH. Yeah, as yeah. the kids say, it's basic. <laughs> so, for example. 20 years ago, we didn't even have a place on the bottom of the ocean that had pHs that high. So I would have said, we don't, ha we don't have a good known analog on the ocean, but we now know there are hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean that are pH 10, and they host life. And chemistry that 
pretty closely mimics what they measured in that plume of Enceladus. And so I think one of the big challenges when we talk about analogs, whether it's Mars or Europa, we just have to remember that there's so many places on our planet that we haven't found yet. You know, we haven't even made the map. We haven't viewed them for the first time. So I think we have some great analogs and lots of scientists are working at them both in the ocean and on land. But I also think we probably have unknown analogs that we just haven't found yet. So the old saying uh, is that when you send a robotic a submarine to the bottom of the ocean, it can examine an area about the size of a living room Yeah, at any one time. Yeah, it's like searching the Grand Canyon with a flashlight, yeah. you know. So you're, you're going to see some things, but you're going to miss a lot. Yeah, it's a long process. I, we have made, we've made great progress, I would say, but, you know, ocean sciences is, is not NASA. We don't have the engineering. We don't have the budget. Oh, I was going to, I was going to ask another question real quick. Now, would, would tidal forces uh, change how water rock would interact to create life on, say, like an Enceladus versus a volcanic vent? Would the heat source change what could happen? Yeah, Maybe you want to back up and kind of explain where the tidal heat comes from? Sure. That's, that's a great question. And it's actually the, the reality of tidal heating has changed our perception of what's possible in outer space. So as I said, on Earth, we have plate tectonics. So we're constantly have remelted rock and we have a heat source and it's reacting with rock. It's creating cracks in the rock and the seawater comes in and you get all this interesting chemistry. Uh, as far as we know, no place else in our solar system has plate tectonics. But what we think is happening on Europa, for example, is because of the way the moon is orbiting around Jupiter, you get this tidal flexing. And that is creating... The cracks, for example, that you can see in the icy shell of Europa and could hopefully also be cracking the rocky core of that planet, creating fresh surfaces in the rock for that water to react with. Now, how long can that be sustained, that there's still energy extraction happening? Europa is really, really big. So I'm sure someone's done that calculation. That's not something I do. Uh, but Enceladus is much smaller, so you might have to think about that a little bit different in terms of constantly having fresh rock, you know, reacting with this seawater uh, ocean. The latest uh, study I've seen is about a billion years for for Enceladus. Okay. That, that it's been in this current hot state for about a billion years. Okay. So, you know, if you have fresh rock reacting with water and you're getting this interesting chemistry released, how long do you need before something can take advantage of it? Yeah, uh, Patrick, how long do you, Corey, <laughs> how long do you need? Uh, it's a heck of a question. Uh, before we, uh, Patrick, thank you. This uh, importance yeah, of comparing you, Earth's environment to Enceladus, to Mars, to Europa is vital. I mean, it's just, it's not something where you stop doing everything else you're going to do, finish the interstate highway system or feed as feed everybody it's just something you got to do everybody wonders where we came from and if we're alone in the universe and to answer those questions you've got to explore those other wet worlds whoa Corey! wait that's not something that happens in the deep sea that's something that happens right here on science rules that sounds like a thunder lightning round that's right as the uh, static electricity dissipates from the cloud to the ground or the ground to the cloud, superheating the Earth's atmosphere to this thunderous noise, 
indicates here in Science Rules that it's time for the lightning round, Julie. Dr. Huber. Are you ready? I don't know. What am I doing? You're going to answer quickly these lightning <laughs> round questions. Are they like real questions? Yes. With a fact for an answer? No, or no. your strong opinion because okay. your opinion is correct. <laughs> in the East, we're recording everyone here on the island of Manhattan in New York, New York. The town's so nice, they named it twice. On one side, we have the Hudson River. On the other side, we have a thing we call the East River. Jordan and Jared want to know, is the East River an estuary or is it a river in its own right? I don't know the answer to that the question. The answer is absolutely she does not know. <laughs> What's the strangest thing you found in the deep ocean? What is the strangest thing you found? I've seen a couple of deep sea eruptions in real time, right? So like the volcano is exploding in front of us. Uh, and, you know, I, I should say in front of us being a remotely operated vehicle because it's too dangerous to put a person in that situation. Do you ever go down in submersibles to these crazy depths? I have gone down in submersibles deep deep in the ocean, yes, and it's absolutely spectacular. It's a great way to spend a day. I would do it once a week if I could. Would you consider becoming an astronaut? Well, here is a fun irony of my life is that I get really seasick. Uh, and beneath the surface of the ocean, you don't feel any movement. Right. You're just kind of spinning and floating. But my understanding is that in space, you feel really weird <laughs> and a lot of people get a lot of motion sickness. So I don't think I'd be a very good astronaut. All right. How long would you live underwater? I'd live underwater for a few weeks. Yeah. How about for a few years? No. Would you rather eat tuna fish or krill? I'm a vegetarian. So do you eat phytoplankton? <laughs> or exactly. seaweed. Or seaweed. Uh or do you eat a lot of sea-going plants? Uh, I have actually never eaten anything from the ocean. I am a bleeding heart. What? Wait, 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 wait. I know. Wait, you've never eaten anything from the sea? Yeah, I mean, I have wanted to study the ocean since I was really little. My parents think I'm so weird. No, we'd go out for, like, lobster dinner, and I would just, you know, eat the rice on the side. Okay, 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 but you never had sushi. No. Oh. You know Sandy the squirrel? No. Okay, she's on SpongeBob. She wears. She oh, walks around okay. with a, uh, a dome on her head, the way you do. <laughs> so really, this has just been a delight, Julie. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about the possibility of what would be alien life on our own planet. Yeah, it's been great. It's just a fantastic thing. Thank you so much, Dr. Julie Huber from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Don't go out there saying institute. Don't make me come over there. Oceanographic Institution. It's just been a fantastic show. I'm Bill Nye. I am Corey S. Powell. And when it comes to understanding life in the deep ocean part of our world, science, science rules. If you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps us understand who's listening, what services you'd like to be served with, and it helps other people learn about the show so they can turn it up loud. So thank you. Now, Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell. Our engineer today is Jared O'Connell, mixing an original theme music. We're by Casey Holford. A special thanks, of course, to Claire Rawlinson. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer, the CCO of Stitcher. And on Stitcher, Corey... Julie, science, science rules. rules. Stitcher.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.